Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stoga welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. Europe has had a bad few years. The struggles between North and South, mostly over economics, between East and West, mostly over values. Brexit, which shifted the locus of power eastward, and still the consequences are mostly uncounted, perhaps not yet known. The pandemic, which among all its other impacts, led to interrupted borders in a space that prided itself on having no borders. Tensions with the Americans, the Russians, the Chinese, and overall, arguably, a diminution of global stature for Europe. Pierre Lelouch, former French parliamentarian and minister, spent a considerable part of his long career in politics and government thinking about and working on France's international relations as well as on Europe. Welcome, Pierre. Good day, Alan. Nice to see you. Pierre, I admit my summary of Europe's strategic position might be a bit unfair. Is there a more positive way to look at Europe today? No, I don't think that you exaggerate the problem. Uh, you, you could add. Um... Issues like our vulnerability to terrorism from the Middle East, which has been extremely acute in France uh, in the last few years. You know, we lost uh, several hundred people in, in terrorist attacks in, in France, but there were attacks all around the continent. And then, of course, there is this huge challenge of immigration, uh, mostly from Africa, which is going to double its population. If you look at 2050, Africa will be more than 2 billion people, so we are expecting a wave of several hundred million new migrants from Africa, also people coming from the Indian subcontinent. So the, the continent is um, slowly dying demographically. If you look at the numbers, it's staggering. Uh, countries like Italy, for example, are literally making no more, no more babies. Uh, so the countries are changing, the population are changing. Uh, the Islamic religion is taking a huge place now in, in national debates all over the place, uh, all the way to Scandinavia, not just France or Italy or Spain or Germany. So the challenges are just enormous. Add to this another issue you didn't mention, which is the technological gap in the uh, high-tech world that we are moving in. We are, um, we are left behind. We have essentially missed the third industrial revolution. It's all in, in America and in China, and we're lagging behind uh, with the risk that Europe is going to be uh, the theater of a confrontation between China and America. It's already seen on the 5G, uh, fifth generation, telephony battle over Huawei and so on. So the situation in Europe is very dire, and it's very sad for somebody like me. When I was uh, 50 years ago a student at Harvard Law School, even though I had offers to remain in the United States, I, I would never consider that. I, I was proud to be French and European, and, and for me, the future was Europe. And I went back in the early 70s uh, to make my life in Europe. Uh, the differential of power and influence over the last four or five decades has been, uh, unfortunately, very sad for Europe. We have lost the competition in just about every domain. And... Um, the way we're handling this pandemic in Europe is just very sad also. I mean, the number of dead is staggering. And I'm very, very 
severe on the way the commission, but also national government have handled that. Now, let me summarize this in one sentence. I am struck that the bad guys, the Trump, the Boris Johnson, the Netanyahu, have been able to handle this crisis infinitely much better than the good guys in Europe, the Macron and the Merkel and the Ursula von der Leyen and so on, uh, who have been highly bureaucratic, slow, incompetent. The whole notion that the, you know, we have no industry to produce this vaccine here in Europe, that we have to wait for the American or British to send the vaccines. We don't even know how to spread it and, and deliver it properly. I mean, look at the in the UK, a third of the population has been vaccinated. In France, 2%. In, in Israel, 90%. In America, they're vaccinating a million and a half people a day. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very bad. You, you now have a situation in Europe where countries like, uh, for example, Serbia are selling themselves to the Chinese. Uh, some are buying Russian vaccines. Everybody is going different routes because the system has been has not responded well. So let me let me pull on that thread. Um, the European Union has looked much more like the European disunion, which is yeah. what you just described. Right. Why? What's what are the root causes? Do you think because that's the only way to get towards solutions or next steps? Look, I was a I was minister of Europe, and and it's a very strange situation when you sit uh, around that table, ministerial table, and it's as big as a basketball field, and your colleagues you see them on a television screen because they are too far away. So if you go into a meeting, you have two minutes per country, two minutes. So we're twenty-eight to twenty-seven countries around the table. Things cannot get done. So the, the first problem seems to me that it's too big now to produce decision-making that works. Um, they are constantly uh, infighting coalition to produce uh, no result. So the system is, is paralyzed. Uh, in the middle of this paralysis, the bureaucracy has grown, and the, the commission and the, the various directorates have added layers of bureaucracy and money in the system, open, by the way, to a lot of lobbyists like Washington uh, interaction. So the system is not efficient. And the original cause, the original goal of the six founding countries has been lost into a sort of commercial zone. Uh, so Macron makes all kinds of big speeches on so-called European sovereignty and European self-reliance. And sometimes Merkel agrees with that. But if you look in the details, nothing's happening. And in fact, every signal is going the wrong way. There's a famous Kissinger anecdote when he wondered aloud, who do you call if you want to call Europe, if you want to talk to Europe? You've just mentioned Macron. You mentioned Merkel. Um, those are national leaders. You mentioned the president of the commission. But isn't, isn't one of the issues the lack of leadership unlike those original six states who had a clear vision, they were going somewhere with, with Europe, which never got done. Is there leadership today and is there a vision today? This, 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 to be frank, I, I'm not a fan of Macron. 
Uh, and I don't want to get into internal politics here, but I'm, I'm not a fan. But one thing for Macron is that he has a vision for Europe. He really believes that the goal of Europe is to unite and to be a counterweight to China, Russia, and the, and the U.S. So it's a nice vision. It talks about European sovereignty, talks about European defense. But to be frank, he's the only guy who has that vision in Europe. Merkel was tempted to share it as long as Trump was there, because Trump caused such a fear, created such a disaster in terms of U.S. credibility. Each time there was a NATO meeting, I was there. Uh, leaders were afraid that the U.S. would walk out. So th th this is the kind of ambiance that you had at the time that explains why Germany, for a time, seemed to be playing ball with Macron. But what I see today with Biden coming back, is that the, the old reflexes of going under the American umbrella and uh, each one going in his own direction is, is once again taking a hold. Macron is going to be once again completely isolated. On the defense side, as you know, um, one of the big advance was to create a fund for uh, buying weapons and researching and creating weapons together, but that fund was slashed by half. Uh, because of the pandemics and the use of money elsewhere to relaunch the economy. And today, uh, if you look at the detail of Franco-German negotiation on future armament system, being the next fighter aircraft, the next tank, and so on, there's a huge division and competition, industrial com competition between the two. And we are nowhere near seeing anything substantial coming. So if I look now at the theater in which we are heavily involved, and that is the Sahel region where we have 5,000 soldiers deployed in a very tough and I think, frankly, useless uh, long-term war against uh, terrorism in, in the desert in an area as big as Europe, Sahel area is huge, uh, we are alone. There are a few transport aircraft from the U.S. Air Force and a few Reaper drones, U.S. Reaper drones in Niger, but the Europeans have not come with us. The Bundestag have forbidden the Germans to come with us, and there is a few dozen soldiers from Europe with us, but the rest of the burden is carried only by France, and it's, it's a waste of time and money. If you look at the response to Turkey in Mediterranean, it's not great at all, or in our response, non-response to Libya, or Syria, Europe is nowhere to be seen, even on its own borders. I mean, the Mediterranean is, is, is our cradle as a European civilization. And that is extremely worrying for me. And I could add, of course, Russia and the incapacity we have to fix a, a policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Ukraine, or the Caucasus where we let Putin get away with whatever he wants. So all this is Sorry to sound like this, but, you know, with experience, I am I'm quite depressed uh, the way we are doing this. I, I can see the forces of the 21st century revolving around U.S. and China, and they are dangerous. I can see lots of fires coming from the Middle East, especially Iran, Turkey. But I don't see us, Europeans, taking a hold of our future. And we remain highly dependent on what the U.S. will do. And technologically and economically, we'll totally torn out between U.S. and China. And we may turn out to be only the battlefield of that competition. And that's tragic for what we represent as a civilization in Europe.
One of the examples of that last point, of course, is the recent signing of a EU-Chinese investment agreement, curiously signed in December, just before the Biden administration comes to power, despite the Biden administration having asked for a short delay so that there could be a one of those transatlantic conversations. And you know why? You know why? Why? German car industry. Madame Merkel wanted that deal for German car export in China. That's it. The rest of the deal is crap, really. It's a very bad idea. And for once, Blinken was right. Oh, it was not Blinken. It was a national security advisor. I mean, we, we, we sent the U.S. to hell wrongly this time. Uh, it would have been wiser to sit down with our U.S. allies and figure out a strategy, a concerted strategy vis-a-vis -vis China, because China is, is not treating us as friends. Uh, look at the pandemic, look at the way they are doing business. They are, they are really carving Europe into little pieces, buying here and there elements of the continent. So we need a concerted position with the U.S. We couldn't get it because Madame Merkel and Germany wanted the deal with, uh, with China and uh, France just followed. Um, how, fast forward a year or two, three, how does Europe position itself? Are you on, do you imagine a Europe that remains on side with the Americans in some kind of rethought relationship, a new transatlantic deal of some kind? Uh, strategic autonomy has been suggested where somehow Europe positions itself consciously between China and the United States. Although every time a European says that to me, he insists, oh, but we'll be closer to you than to them. Uh, so it's not quite in the middle. It's a little bit not in the middle. Or is there no possibility, which is a third option, of Europe actually becoming strategic again with a conscious shared vision? What would it take? Trump couldn't get you there, although he's threatening to come back. Uh, what would it take to get Europe to make a choice? Um, no, the, I think um, going back to transatlantic friendship as before, uh, or relation as before, as if it was an ideal world, is going to be very hard. First of all, because the history of transatlantic relation was always very complicated. There was always all kinds of fights. Uh, remember the Euro missile battle in late 70s and early 80s, or the poultry war. There were all kinds of commercial battles, military battle over deterrence and extended deterrence. So it was never a piece of cake. It was always a, a complicated relationship. But the, the essential link between America and Europe was there. I am. I'm now worried that this link is no longer very much there because the shift of the U.S. away from Europe did not begin with Trump. It began long ago, especially with Clinton and Obama. And Obama means Biden. Biden was his vice president. And the shift towards other issues, uh, getting out of the Middle East and focusing on China is a very old issue. It goes back all the way to, to George W. I mean, uh, before he went into the Middle East, his goal was China, remember? So I think the, the U.S. internally, as a nation, is losing, gradually losing its roots with Europe. People are different. The composition of the American people is moving far away, further away from its European roots into something else. It's going to be more of Asia, more of Africa, more of Latin America. And it's normal. 
Um, so I, I think us in York, we should not believe that Biden is here, so it's going, going back to normal. It's not going to be normal, or it's going to be the normality of Obama, which is a great deal of indifference, frankly. Uh, added to, to that, you have the tendency on which I have worked a lot in the French parliament and I wrote many reports on that, on the extraterritorial application of U.S. legislation and sanctions. So U.S. have now gotten this terrible habit, which we suppressed in the 1970s, but it's now major in U.S. legislation, that they're going to legislate for the rest of the world. So if there is a problem and you cannot send an aircraft, you use sanction and you punish not only American companies, but going to punish everybody, including French banks, German banks, so on. And it's going to be very hard for us Europeans to explain to the Americans that as long as they do that, they are shooting themselves in the foot, losing allies, and creating a boulevard for Chinese penetration in Europe. The Chinese are taking exactly in appearance the contrary discourse. So I would really caution, you know, if I had Blinken or Biden in front of me, I said, please look at this as a priority because you cannot ruin your allies' economy and expect them to be your ally. So we've got to find a way to pacify those relations, work together. I mean, one central issue today, for example, is the gasoduct, the gas pipeline, uh, Nord Stream 2 with Russia. If the U.S. managed to kill Nord Stream 2, it's going to create havoc in terms of uh, relationship with Germany and the rest of Europe. If they kill that project, because there are plenty of good reasons to kill that project, but I think it's stupid. And I think we need a different kind of relationship with Russia. But it's one tracking example of where we are. So going back to business as usual with the U.S., I don't believe it. What can we create in the meantime in Europe is going to be very complicated. If now, especially now that we lost the British, the only country that was serious militarily outside France was the UK, and the UK is no longer in the family. So somehow we are going to try to, to recreate some links with the UK on strategic and political issues, involve the Germans, see how the internal dynamic in Germany are going to move. If we have a left-wing green government Forget about military intervention, forget about exporting weapons, forget about military cooperation outside NATO. It's going to be very hard to do. So we are entering in a very, very uncertain territory at the time where we should need to make a decision. And I don't think, to be frank, that uh, nice speeches by Macron alone will suffice, unfortunately. This sanction disease that you mentioned is unfortunately contagious. We see it in the Navalny case. Uh, we'll see it in the Uyghur case. Uh, we may see it in the Olympics, Chinese Olympics next year case. Europeans are starting to like sanctions almost as much as Americans like sanctions uh, because it seems to be painless. No one dies. Um, at least no one dies on the first day. They may die eventually. But it's been fascinating to watch that process extend, which is contradictory to, of course, globalization. The more you put sanctions in place or the possibilities of sanctions in place, the less freely capital flows, investment flows, and so on. But what you're going to end up is, is competing blocks because the Chinese won't let it happen. So they will use their own current currency, including uh, uh, cyber currency. 
they will use their own norms. And if we can cooperate to create the same system of norms, we will have rival blocks sanctioning each other. And again, the danger for us Europeans is to be stuck in the middle. Everybody is going to sanction each other over our head and on our territory. This is the kind of world we're moving. Very unpleasant. And, and you will try to build walls around Europe. We already see that happening with the carbon tax proposals. Uh, it's about the environment, but it has the practical consequence of discouraging or, or penalizing imports, both of goods and investment from other parts of the world. So it, it feels like we're in a world that is, as you just said, moving towards de facto, not de jure, blocks, inward looking rather than outward looking, second best or third best, certainly less likely to produce dynamic economic growth. In fact, almost no chance of producing dynamic ec economic growth, which is to say not delivering on the social contract between right. government and the governed. And we know how that ends. It ends with people in the streets. You've had the yellow vest. Especially after the pandemics. Especially after the pandemic. Of course. You expect, expect to have very violent reaction after the pandemics. Uh, there's an interesting couple of reports coming out of the IMF. Use example on the uh, cholera plague in, uh, in France in the 1930s. Each time you have a pandemic, at the end of a pandemic, you have very strong a social movement because, you know, people have, have been kept down as long as the pandemic was there. But the moment they are free again, all the tensions uh, explode. So expect to have very strong pressures uh, in Europe, but also in the States, because uh, what we saw with the capital is by no means finished. So the, the racial tension in the States are, are to me, extremely uh, telling about the the breakdown of the country, which is significant in a way, uh, reminding you of the civil war. And in fact, uh, remember how Biden spoke about the uncivil war uh, during his uh, his speech uh, on the day he took power. In in Europe, you have those racial tensions all over the place as well, and uh, expect to have. Um, some very serious backlash after the pandemic, which will coincide with what, with what you just said, namely a, a system of competition and blocks that will uh, probably not help uh, international trade. So let me push you on that, because I think you are exactly right in your analysis and in your forecast. What happens the morning after? You've spent a career around government, in government, as a politician, as an elected official, as well as in government positions. What happens to democracy in that world? How, how does it evolve? Good, bad, or ugly? What do you think? Well, usually it, it, it ends up ugly. Some of the consequences of the um, so-called Spanish flu, which was, as you know, was not Spanish and it was not the flu, uh, took place in, in Germany in the 1920s and combined with a major economic havoc, which then led to what you know what happened in the 1930s. So the tensions... We are entering now a world of great tension. Um, of course, the acceleration of Chinese power, which is, by the way, a scandal, because after all, this whole mess started over there, and they managed to, to present this as a huge success for China, which is mind-boggling. Uh, not even the Soviets, after Chernobyl, presented Chernobyl as a success. All right. Then the Chinese managed to, to explain that not only they have nothing to do with it, but they 
their system is much better than ours in handling such a situation. So yes, there will be a challenge between authoritarian government and methods and what's left of democratic uh, government. And inside our democratic countries, you will have a great deal more tension uh, as a result of economic uh, suffering, plus increasing racial tension. I'm, I'm struck with that again. People talk about race all the time in the state, but now in Europe as well. The, the race has become, of course, gender as well. It's like in the old days, I mean, I, as a French student, I was, I was raised in the, in the struggle, class struggle. We had, thank God, we had, we had Marx. We had an explanation of social tension between, as a result of class struggle, social interest. Today, what it is, it's gender. Am I homo, not homo? And am I black or not black? I mean, this is crazy. This, it's, the society is being uh, split in, in little pieces, not around democratic values or social interests, but race or even tension between men and women, which is just mind-boggling. Uh, very strange, but I'm too old. My, my political culture was not based on men fighting women or black fighting white and so on. Probably outdated. I should, um, I should discover the new world. The new world is all about uh, gender and language and race and walks. And it's crazy. It, you know, it's a sign of major impoverishment of our public life. When the only thing you have to fight about is the color of a human being, I think you've lost, completely lost the sense of where the society is going. So you and I are at the end of our careers, but if you, if there was a time machine, you get to travel or you get to be reincarnated as a young Pierre Lelouch today, would you go into politics? No, no. I would be much more selfish. Uh, this is something that told my, my, my family. Uh, politics is, is, is fascinating. It's a great adrenaline. It, it's, a, it's an honor, but it's killing everything around you. It's killing your life. You, you spend all your life working like, like crazy day and night. It's very demanding, very cruel, very difficult. And at the end of the day, when you see that you have made no difference, the decline of your country and your continent has accelerated, in, and that's a terrible balance sheet. And so, the, yes, you know, if I had, the, if I were smarter, I would have gone into business, uh, like all some of my friends, and have a, a nice yacht in Miami today, and be in the sun and enjoy my personal life. Uh, but I'm kidding, of course. I, I would, I would do exactly what I've done. I'm, I'm, I'm too patriotic, too much in love with France, too much in love with, um, with our democracy. I would. I was kidding, of course. I would simply try again, and I will try again. You said we are at the end of our career, but I will not stop fighting until my last breath. I'll continue to write, continue to to try to be part of the debate because uh, the fight is not uh, is not over. And after all, the Chinese will have problems of their own, and and technology will have problems of its own, and and Europe is a very old civilization, and we will find a way to to go over these problems. But if you look at the problems today, yes, they are staggering and the picture looks bad. 
But unless people like you and people like others that we at the Telberg Foundation are trying to engage with, don't try to make the forces of good more muscular and more effective, uh, the spiral you described earlier will only intensify. I would agree entirely that we're at one of those moments where you can feel the, the, the spiral intensifying and, and, and in the wrong direction. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I would not be surprised if we get some, some very nasty developments because the situation is very dire. Anything can happen over the Iran bomb in the next few weeks and months. Anything can happen in the South China Sea or in the Med. There are flashpoints in two or three places which can inflame this uh, highly unstable situation. So it's going to be tough to, to maintain peace in the next uh, months and years. It's a, it's a inflection point in world history today. The mixture of a pandemic, China, U.S. competition, huge demographic change, uh, Islamic pressure, weakening of democratic values, all this is a recipe for a lot of trouble in the short, in the near future, not in the long term, the near future. I want to thank you for the conversation and thank you for to keep on thinking about these issues and trying to trying to resist those negative outcomes because we have to find a way to do that. So thank you very much, Pierre. And thank you for a job you're doing at the foundation. Helps a lot, Alan. My pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org, and please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niorgos Foundation.